Good morning. The reading for today can be found on page six of your bulletin. It's a long one. You may want to read along. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, 12 through 34, and 51 to 58. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. First fruits of those who have been fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Sorry, y'all. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. 
death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The word of the Lord. What we should do is just have Sister Rachel read it again and again. <laughs> Thank you. And um, here's Easter hope. Long reading doesn't necessarily mean long sermon. <laughs> then again, I've said that before, so y'all better be praying. Before we dive into this, I want to also make sure to invite you all to hang around. Uh, we will uh, hear from God's word. We'll have a time of Q&A, so be thinking about questions you might ask. We'll wrap up our worship service with communion, uh, but afterwards, we got lunch, and we would love to share a meal together with you. It is a potluck meal, but please come, even if you didn't bring anything, your potluck, your contribution is you. Uh, we would love to be in community and fellowship with you, so please hang around uh, for lunch right afterwards. Uh, downstairs. Let's pause and say a word of prayer uh, before we open up this passage together. Jesus, we're looking to you for hope and for help. And we ask that you would come now and send your spirit that we would see the reality and the promise of your resurrection in a new way. We pray that you would come and give power to our minds that we would understand these truths more fully, but that you would also come and fill our hearts, uh, that we would respond with our emotions, with our hearts, with our beings, in a way that's consistent with the joy of whom we have in you, our risen Savior, and that we would also then respond with our wills, wanting to change, wanting to live in accordance with the reality of your life. And so come and change all of us because you deserve all of us. Make this time a love offering to you. Jesus, this is for you, a tribute to you. And so glorify yourself in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite Easter traditions or activities is the coloring of Easter eggs. I don't know if that's the case for you. I love, have always loved coloring Easter eggs. As a kid, I loved dipping these eggs in different colors, seeing them go in white and coming out all kinds of hues, red and blue and yellow and green. And I remember always getting the dye all over my hands, sometimes all over my shirt as well. I also remember leaving the eggs after they've been completed in my fridge and leaving them there to be admired for as long as I could so that I could check back in day after day and gaze at my 
colorful creations day after day after day after day after day after day until the eggs had gotten so old that sometimes I wasn't sure if it was safe to eat them anymore. See, they still looked attractive on the outside, but what were they really like on the inside? I wonder if that's a little bit like what the resurrection of Jesus feels like for many of us. It's attractive on the outside. Maybe you're looking at it from afar. Maybe you've been around the idea of Christ's resurrection for many years, and it's attractive. It's vaguely uplifting, certainly one time a year, maybe even inspiring. Besides, who doesn't like a happy ending to a story? But if you were to crack it open, find out what it's really made of, you're actually not completely sure what you'd find. See, some of us today here are skeptical about the resurrection. It's scientifically implausible, after all. Uh, maybe you might say the stuff of ancient mythology. And you're pretty sure that beneath its happy exterior, the resurrection is probably a rotten egg. It might even be dangerous if you bit into it, you might say, let alone if you actually went and banked your life on it. Others of us believe in the resurrection of Jesus, sort of, but you've never really looked beneath the surface, never really peeled that shell. Is it hard-boiled? Is it soft-boiled? Is it true? Is it satisfying? Is it life-changing? Is it a lie? You're really not sure. And in fact, you've never actually taken a bite. See, that's why this passage from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth in the ancient Mediterranean region, why it's so helpful for us today. You see, it invites us to crack open that Easter egg. The apostle is writing to a church that had gotten a little bit confused about this foundational truth and commitment, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here he answers the question, what's the big deal about the resurrection and what does it mean for us personally? Well, you know what? This passage teaches us four things. Number one, first of all, that Christ's resurrection proves our forgiveness. Christ's resurrection proves our forgiveness. One of the most precious promises in the entirety of the Christian faith is the promise of forgiveness. Take a look at verse 3. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, Jesus, as our human representative, both fully God and fully man in one person, he died the death that we should have died. He died, in fact, in our place 
taking the judgment that all our sins and selfishness deserve. You see, justice isn't just set aside. Justice on the cross is satisfied. So all who put their trust in Jesus and say, he's my man, he's the one who represents me before God, are forgiven by God. Do you know the forgiveness of God? But see, then notice the stunning words of verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In other words, you are not forgiven and will still be treated by God as your sins actually deserve if Christ's resurrection was a sham. And what's the connection then between Christ's resurrection and our forgiveness? That Paul could say, importantly, if Christ has not been raised, you are not forgiven. But if Christ has been raised, you are. The other day, my daughter was with me at Giant, the grocery store. And I paid for our groceries, and she was watching me do this all along, as she often does. I paid for the groceries, and then I grabbed the receipt out of the little machine there and started to walk out when she asked, Daddy, why do we get a receipt at the grocery store? Why do we get a receipt? And my first thought was, so they know you didn't shoplift nothing. <laughs> then I slowed down and explained to her, a receipt lists all the different things that you buy. The cheese and the milk and the bread and the noodles and the things that you want to eat. And then at the bottom, it shows how much money you paid for all of your groceries. A, a, a receipt proves that you paid. What the first part of today's passage teaches us is that Jesus' resurrection was God's receipt. It proved that Jesus really did pay for all our sins. As the old theologian J.C. Ryle once put it, Christ's resurrection was the crowning proof that the ransom he paid for sinners was accepted. The atonement for sin accomplished. This is good news that we need today. Because some of us have been running away from God because of guilt. Guilt can drain your life, can't it? Some of us are, are avoiding God. Or, or maybe avoiding other people because of something you've done. Or maybe it's something that you've failed to do. It just feels like too big a mistake to ever move past. And that's why maybe every time you even think about God, he just pops into your mind. You just want to change the subject in your head. You just can't bear that guilt no more. Or maybe it's that sinful habit or pattern. It, you actually know that it not only offends God, that, but you also know it's destructive to your own soul. 
but you feel stuck and you've done it again and again and again. And, and then you've got that voice in your head that's been nagging at you, telling you, sometimes even shouting at you that this has just gone on too long. And so don't even bother hoping that he might forgive you. And you're just now too embarrassed to even ask for it anymore. Friends, today is Resurrection Day. Friends, today is Resurrection Day, and that means today is a day of freedom from slavery to guilt. You need to take a hold of that receipt of Christ's resurrection into your heart. And you need to know beyond a shadow of your doubt that if you put your trust in Jesus, all your sins, past, present, and future, all of them have been paid by Christ on the cross, guaranteed. All your sins, the big one-timers, and the repeated every-timers, guess what? Forgiven. Look at Christ's resurrection today and hear God declare over your sins, paid in full. Hallelujah. Grab a hold of that receipt this morning. Christ's resurrection proves our forgiveness. Secondly, Christ's resurrection predicts the end of our world's brokenness and evil. It predicts the end of brokenness and evil. Verses 24 and 25 tell us this. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul uses here the language of first fruits in verses 20 and 23. That's language taken out from the agricultural world, the world of plants. It's sort of like our world is currently living in a prolonged state of winter, cold and dark and dead. And some of you know that feeling of winter a little bit too deeply here today. And what we're told is that the resurrection of Christ is like the, the, the little green bud on that otherwise naked tree, that little green bud that started showing up a few weeks ago on tree branches all across the city. That little green bud that's starting to pop up that's telling us what? The seasons are going to change. The snow is beginning to melt, as it were. One day, it's going to be summer again. You heard the royal language in this passage of dominion and authority and power in verse 24 to describe what Paul calls the enemies of Christ. You see, presently there are spiritual forces that you might describe as kind of imposter kings 
That's sort of forcing their will upon a vulnerable world. Disease, violence, injustice, that, that's just wreaking havoc in our world, reigning over the winter. Paul is telling us that the resurrection of Christ is God's declaration that their time is up. And when Jesus returns, everything will finally be made new. One of the activities that takes place in my home that often reveals the differences between myself and my wife is when we endeavor to clean out our fridge. And it all boils down to this set of numbers that you'll find on the side of bottles and underneath cans called the expiration date. Half the time we're cleaning things out, we're debating how old is too old. It becomes a philosophical question, you see, right? Paula is pretty ruthless in the best way. Uh, if we're past the expiration date, it's getting tossed out, no questions asked. I'm always trying to stretch it. Because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to waste anything. You see, you, you got to make the most, right? You know that milk is sour, but it's not that sour, right? You know, 2014 wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, just like yes, I, mean, I better wrap this little story up. No one's ever going to come over to, for dinner anymore, right? Listen, listen. What this passage promises us, oh, this is good news. Every ugly and painful thing in our world's got an expiration date. It's coming to an end. Darkness and tears will not reign forever. Here's hope in a broken world. Depression has an expiration date. Poverty has an expiration date. Sexual abuse has an expiration date. Racism has an expiration date. Cancer has an expiration date. Jesus is on the move healing our broken world. And he's coming back and he's going to finish the task and bring an end to all the sorrow and sadness and tears and sin and badness, he's going to bring it all to an end. And what that means, therefore, is not only that we have hope that we can endure, that we cannot hang on for another day because change is going to come. You can hang on for another stretch, though it's hard and your energy is running out and your hope is running thin because change is going to come. The snow is melting, the light is shining in the darkness, and summer is rising. And you can therefore labor with hope, tackling these issues of oppression and injustice bringing hope to a broken world, being agents of healing, bringing about resurrection life in the near term, among your neighbors, your coworkers, the people with whom you have relationship in neighborhood life. 
You can labor with renewed perseverance. You can hang in there. Because you know these things, in fact, have an expiration date. It's not a lost cause. You can run with joy and confidence even because, as it says at the end of verse 58, you know that your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus is going to win. Indeed, he's already won when he rose from the grave. Beloved, it ain't going to be winner forever. Hallelujah. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection promises the death of death. Christ's resurrection promises the death of death. Guess what? Guess what? Death is going to die. Jesus defeated the power of death when he rose from the dead. Acts 2.24 puts it this way, God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And one day when Jesus returns, and he is going to return, he's alive, you know, death itself will be completely destroyed forever. One day, someday. And that's why in verse 26, we're told this, the last enemy of God to be destroyed is death. And in verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with, the Im with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your victory? Sting. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's really sad, actually, when you encounter certain dogs, maybe in the local community, and you simply raise your hand around them for whatever reason, and they instantly wince or, or, or growl at you because they're sure that you're about to hit them. Sometimes it's because they were abused by a, a former owner. You know, guess what? We're kind of like that dog. We've been so abused by death and the fear of death that we tend to live our whole lives kind of flinching, sometimes growling aggressively because of our deep, lifelong fear of death. Our lives are so bombarded by this fear and by death itself that too often we forget that, according to the Bible, that death is not only unnatural, and did you know, death is not natural. It's actually a violent ripping apart of our humanity. It's a ripping apart of bodies from souls as we decay in the ground. But also, as Genesis 3 tells us, death entered the world in the first place because of sin. And that's why verse 56 reminds us that the sting of death is sin. What really makes it a poison to us is the reality of sin, our offensiveness to God. And so that means when Jesus died and conquered sin, as we talked about earlier, 
When he paid the penalty of sin, when he reigned victorious over sin, he also conquered the consequences of sin, including death itself. Death has no claim upon humanity any longer. Again, it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him and also us. You see, Christ's resurrection is a promise of the death of death. Will you believe it? One day, someday, death itself will die. And that means we can find new freedom. New freedom even now in this life by the paralyzing fear of death. Jesus himself said in John eleven twenty five and 26, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What if, ponder with me, what if death wasn't the end of your story? Would you live differently then? What if death wasn't the end of your story? Do you want that kind of security of life today? You know you can get it. Put your trust in Christ, the risen one, today. What if you really believed that if you're in Christ, that you're going to live forever? How might you live tomorrow differently? I'll tell you two differences. Number one, you might start to live with a whole lot more sense of meaning and purpose. You see, some of you are just throwing your lives away because you feel like, well, heck, I only got a couple of years, maybe a couple of decades left on this planet, and then after that, it's just all over. You've got the very understandable mindset that's captured in the second half of verse 32, when it says there, if the, death are, if the dead are not raised, well then, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But oh, what kind of purposefulness and sense of groundedness of meaning to life there is if you begin to believe that even when you die, you will not surely die. Indeed, you will one day again rise to life. Secondly, what else happens if we believe this to be true? I think what we find is then we begin to be able to live with what you might call resurrection risk. You know, you're willing to love people even when it costs you. You know, you're willing to love people even when it might cost you your life. And of course, the Bible doesn't talk about that flippantly, but it does give us example after example after example of people, beginning with the Apostle Paul and others around him, the original disciples, who gave up their life precisely because they believed in this promise of the death, of death, and the resurrection of Christ. What does resurrection risk look like? Well, it might look like you being a little bit more willing to dare, to move near to neighbors, uh, maybe even in parts of town or the corner of a neighborhood where there might be a little bit more physical risk, but you're willing to assume that upon yourself. Because there's some neighbors I've got to love. Or you're willing to 
dare to go overseas to bring this good news of Jesus, his love and his unmerited favor. Bring the gospel to people who've never heard about Jesus, even in places that are hostile to the Christian faith. Places where persecution of Christians is a part of everyday life. Uh, Places where you might actually be risking your life by living there, let alone speaking the name of Jesus there. But you say, this is how Jesus loved me. And he was willing to love even at the cost of his own life to love me and I want to love like him. But here's another way that I'm like him. He rose again and one day I'm going to rise again too. It's worth it. It's worth it to love like that. Because of the resurrection, will you dare to love in risky ways? And we can do that with joy, with energy, if we believe that the resurrection of Christ means that one day death itself will die. Fourthly and lastly, Christ's resurrection not only proves God's forgiveness of our sins, and not only points forward to the end of all injustice and brokenness and evil, and not only does it promise us the death of death, but it previews for us true life. True life. In verses 22 and 23, the apostle says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the fruit, first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. You know what this passage is telling us here. That Jesus' resurrection wasn't simply a one-time deal. It was actually the first among a multitude of people who will be raised to life just like him one day. That is your future if you are in Christ, if you have put your trust in him, if you've given your life to him, if you've elected him as your savior and representative before God. And here's where it's so important for us to understand that Jesus didn't simply just die and then in his resurrection just come back, come back to the same life that he had just three days earlier with the old tired, worn out, slowly dying kind of body that we all have. Rather, the Bible says that he was raised to life with a whole new life, with a perfected body, uh, no longer worn down by weariness, uh, no longer decaying in his flesh, no longer dying and being worn down. That's why it says a lot of the disciples barely even recognized him when they finally saw him. And that's why verse 51 tells us, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed 
in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. See, here's the promise of the resurrection of Christ. That for all of those, not just Jesus, but for all of those who are connected to him by faith, one day you will live a life of no more tears, no more fighting disease, no more resisting the falling apart of your bodies. Get this, no more struggles against sin. No more running away from God and other people. He's going to make it all right. He's going to give you a raised perfected life. And here's the point. That's the life that you were created to have. That's the perfect human life that God intends you to possess from now for all of eternity. See, resurrection isn't just a little trick and gimmick that Jesus did a long time ago. And it's not even just release and relief for us it's restoration to being finally all that God intended you to be. Finally, you get to be the true you. Oh, how much energy and heartache we burn because of our search for identity a sense of belonging and purpose in this world. Don't you know resurrection life, what the Bible also calls eternal life, is your final destination, is the fullness of your identity, especially when you understand that we will finally be united to God in Christ, which is why when 1 Thessalonians 4.17 talks about our future resurrection, it climaxes with, with these words, and so we will be with the Lord forever. We won't just be perfected in ourselves, but we will be perfected in our communion with God himself in Christ. See, this is the hope of the resurrection. You finally get to be the real you. Don't you long for that? Don't you want to finally rest in that hope? Don't you want to discover all that God intended for you? He holds it out for you today in the resurrection of Christ. He gives to us the end of guilt this grand promise, the end of evil and injustice, the end of death, but most of all, he gives us in Christ the beginning of life. So will you today peel open that egg? Because do you know what you're going to find inside? Hope. A, a, a nice hard-boiled hope. <laughs> that won't let you down. Hope of real life. Hope of knowing God. Hope of finding power in the midst of a weary and broken world. Hope in the face of the fear of death. Hope in the face of your own struggles with sin and guilt. Hope and a reason to confess today and every day 
that Christ is risen. He is risen Christ is risen. He is risen Christ is risen. Let's pray. Jesus, we long to crack open the realities of your resurrection, to be changed by your promises. And so do that in our midst. Keep pouring out the power of your Holy Spirit upon us. Open our eyes to see you, our risen Savior. Change our lives, change our church, change our neighborhood, change our city, change our world. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.